If you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to walk through a section of Scripture that is vitally important, I'm convinced, for the way that we conduct ourselves in the household of God. You know, one of the things that the church in at least our region is really guilty of is an exegetical error where we look at the Scripture and we always assume, no matter what the passage is, that it's always about an individual. So, for instance, we come to passages like Ephesians chapter 2, and it says, For you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In our examination of that, we immediately place ourselves, just us, just alone. We find ourselves in that passage and say, I, I was dead. And that's true. But the reality is that if you walk through Ephesians 2, you're not just looking at the individual. You're looking at a people. You're looking at not only a people, but I would go to the extent of saying you're looking at the church of God. That every member of the church of God can look in Ephesians 2 and say, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. They can go a bit further and they can see that they have been made alive together with Christ. They can go a bit even further and see that now they will be seated with him in the heavenly places. They will be raised with him. All of the beautiful truths that you have in Ephesians 2 are really not only individually yours, but they are also corporately the churches. This morning what I'd like to do is take a passage of scripture that I think is really important for how we conduct ourselves in the household of God and see it applied individually, but then also corporately. Because throughout Scripture, there's this understanding that the church of God conducts themselves in a way that is incredibly distinct from the rest of the world. That if someone were to walk into Mercy Hill Church or someone were to walk into any faithful body of Christ, they would walk in and the immediate thought would be, these people are weird. They're different. They're distinct. They should look in and they should even, perhaps even profess that surely God is among them. There is something dramatically different about them. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is walk us through Colossians chapter 3, because in it, I'm convinced that we see not only the reason for our distinction, but also some ways that we can live our life distinct from the world that honors Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is Colossians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll make our way through verse 17. I know it's a big chunk, but it's lovely outside. So that's good. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning asking You to bless the preaching of Your Word. Lord, we know that there is no authority in man. There's, no, there's nothing unique about a voice, but Lord, there is something significant. There is something infallible and inerrant about the Scriptures. And so, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you will illuminate to us what you have inspired, that you will cause us in our hearts to rejoice at the Scriptures that you have given. And, Lord, would you help us to live before God in a way that is honoring and pleasing to him. But, Lord, we know that the only means of us doing that is through the finished work of Jesus. So, Father, help us to fix our eyes on him. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, what I'd like to do is walk through this passage. We're going to take it in a couple of ways, but just understand that we're walking through 17 verses, so we're going to do it a bit broad. Um, so we're going to do it in a way that's going to be a really kind of overview. And so, so we're going to do it in an overview. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to take these really section by section, paragraph by paragraph. And what I want to do is take the overarching theme of what Paul is putting forward here so that we can understand it and really place it into our immediate context. And so we kind of have it broken up into a couple of points. The first one is this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek him. If then you are dead, die. If then you are alive, live. And lastly, if then you are called into one body, dwell. So the first thing that I want to deal with is this first if-then statement. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek him. Now, uh, looking at just the first verse here, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now, uh, first thing I want to bring to our attention is that Paul pauses as he's introducing the faith family and how we're going to conduct ourselves in the household of God by immediately pointing to the fact that we have been raised with Christ. Now, this is vitally important because if we, don't, if we have not been raised with Christ, really nothing else that we're going to walk to is going to pertain to us because you are totally unable to actually do anything that he's going to command. You're not going to love him. You're not going to love the saints. You're not going to love the brothers. It requires the radical work of God to birth this in you. And the reason this is so important is because if we miss this, then we really will miss the power of the Christian life. There is no assumption that we're going to love the brothers until Christ has caused us to be raised with the resurrection that he himself was raised in. Notice what the language says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. This is a radical resurrection. And let me tell you how we know that for certain. Because Paul elsewhere in Romans 3 says, No one seeks God, no, not one. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. And yet, as Paul is considering the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection that we have in him, he immediately issues a command on the back end. It's rather simple, but it also is a clear indication that God has done a great work in us. This command, seek the things that are above, is indicative of the fact that we have been raised with him, that the radical work of the Spirit has taken hold to such a degree that we will actually seek after Christ. And not only seek after Christ, but seek out after Christ and all of his benefits, all of his joys, all of his pleasures. And so as a faith family, as a body who has been brought into the family of God, each member has been raised with Christ. But we can also say that the church has been raised with Christ. That every member of the body of Christ has been raised that we might seek the things that are above. And as we seek the things that are above... He then goes on to encourage us in our seeking. And I love how he does this because only in the Christian faith can this be an encouragement. Notice what the scripture says in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul encourages the saints by reminding them of their death. 
Isn't that sweet that the Christian faith can say things like that? When Paul is writing to them and he's telling them, look, I want you to see the things that are above. You have this great work of the Spirit that's been done in, done in you. You've been raised to newness of life. You can seek the things of God. But in your seeking the things of God, remember this one great truth, that you died. That you have actually died. And one of the best ways for us to understand this is Paul addressing it earlier on in the book of Colossians. In Colossians 2, 13 through 14, it says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now here's the dead portion. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Saints, consider this for just a moment. We think about the death that we make reference to so often in the Christian faith, but I don't think we ever really taste it. When we look at the cross of Christ and we see him die there, the beauty of substitutionary atonement is that Jesus dying there, you died there. That he bore your sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. If you want to see where the old man died, you look to the cross of Christ. It was there that he nailed the old man to the tree. It was there that the old man was conquered in full. And now, because of Christ's finished work, not only can we be encouraged by the fact that we are dead, that we died there, but we can also be encouraged by the subsequent resurrection that happens for all who died there. When Christ died on the cross, we shared in that death. This also means that when Christ raised from the dead, we share in that resurrection. The resurrection we have is the resurrection that Christ has given to us by his resurrection. And so what we see here is this concept of the old man is being put to death and he is indeed dead. He is actually dead. And I know that you're looking around and you're considering your own life and you see remnants of him left. But he is dead. He is actually dead. He has been conquered. She has been conquered. And we'll see how this plays out here in a moment. But saints, we must remember and grasp and, and, and worship in the light of the old man. The man who I once was, though remnants of him still remain, he is dead. He has been conquered in Christ. And the life that I now live, I live to God by the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection brought in me by the Spirit of God. And so we have these realities set forth before us as we press into these commands that he gives us in the household of God. And the things that we must be just constantly remembering as we press forward is the old man is indeed dead, but not only is the old man dead, the new man lives, but he lives in a very specific way. It is not life abstract. It is life actually really clearly laid out for us. What is that life? It says this in verse 3. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Can you think of any place so secure? Can you think of any reality so precious that the life that you have is as Paul writes here in Colossians, is hidden with Christ in God? That means that we, the life that we have is not the life that is often put forth here in the world when people talk about the good life. It is the life that the scripture sets forth in John 17, 3. The life that we have is hidden with God in Christ, meaning that our life is rooted in him, is rooted in his person, is rooted in his work and our delight in him. This is the life that we have here below. And the life that we have here below is what he uses to encourage us to live all the more. And so as Paul sets these two themes forward, he says... Die because you are dead and live because you are alive. And that's what I want to walk us through. So the first thing that we need to understand is if we have been raised with Christ, then we need to ever constantly be seeking after him, delighting in the fact that if he died and we died in him, then we, the old man is dead. But if the old man is dead, then we rest comfortably knowing that the new man, that God has given life to him, that the man that now lives in Christ, 
truly does live unto God. Now, if that's all a reality, how does that play out in the Christian life? What does it mean that we are dead and thus we need to continue to die? Because what verse 5 says is put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So the question is, if we are already dead, why are we being commanded to put to death what is earthly in you? Saints, am I the only one who still has those remnants? That there are moments where I realize, my goodness, yes, sin is conquered, its consequence is done away with. And in the process of sanctification, God is growing me in holiness and releasing me from its power, but its presence is all too real. And oh, how we hate it. And Paul admits this, I would have to argue, even as he writes this, just vitriol and hatred towards sin. He demands that we do something. He demands that we put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But remember, he only demands this in light of the fact that the old man is indeed already dead. You're fighting a corpse. But he demands that we put these things to death. And he demands this, I think, really for the same reason that he calls Timothy to pursue Christ. is because Paul loves the saints of God. Paul loves the church. And more than that, he knows of Christ's love for the church. He knows that even in their being dead and crucified in Christ, that still the remnants of sin remain and the hatred that they have of it. And so what he wants to do is give a command, give a commission, put these things all the more to death. And he does it in two ways. The first way is that he demands that we put to death earthly works, primarily because they are fleeting, but mostly because they are that which bring the wrath of God. Notice the language. He says, put all these things to death. And then in verse 6 it says, on account of these the wrath of God is coming. Put to death all of these wicked deeds, all of these wicked actions. You wage war on them and put them to death. Primarily because in them we see the wrath of God is indeed barreling toward anyone who commits them. Now, we need to remember one great thing as we consider this. That the wrath of God that we are considering even this moment is the wrath of God which Christ has absorbed for us. If you have died in Christ, then you can know with great certainty that the wrath that is due you for each of these sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, and idolatry, have actually been absorbed in Christ. Certainly it is true and real that wrath was due you. But it is all the more true that wrath has already been executed in Christ. Now, this doesn't remove from us the hatred of sin. As a matter of fact, I think if anything, it causes us to hate it all the more. And so what then should we do? We should wage great war on these sins, primarily because they bring the wrath of God, and we have seen the wrath of God absorbed in Christ. Our affection for Him should cause us to hate sin all the more. And so he says, wage a great war on these things. Put these things to death. But then he goes a bit further. He says, not only in regard to sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, and pretty much all of these sins lead to some physical manifestation. There's something that we're going to do in light of these deep-rooted sins in us. Paul demands that we put them to death. But what I think is most interesting, and frankly, what I think is most prevalent, even in the saints of God, is this second section that he works with. Notice what it says in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, saying that you have put off the old self with its practices. Each of these sins are sins of the tongue. Each of these sins are sins that I think are wildly prevalent in the saints. 
oftentimes we look at this first list and we say, of course, I would do none of these things. And yet still on the tongue of people who worship and praise God is anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. And I love the explicit command to do not lie to one another. Friends, if we be in Christ, if our delight is to see him, to behold him, to delight in him and to walk as he walked, then how is it that we can lie knowing that we serve the God of truth? How is it that we can commit any of these trespasses and, and cuddle them? You know, the greatest indication of the fact that you have died with Christ is that you grow to hate the remnants of sin that remain in you. The greatest evidence that you have died with Christ is that you are continuing to die in daily life. That you are aiming to constantly walk away, to take off the old man, to remove the remnants that are left in him. And it is oftentimes that we have these sins that we gloss over, friends. Paul does not. Christ does not. He demands that we put these things to death. And I will tell you just from a pastoral perspective, very rarely do I have counseling that's a result of this first list of sins. But quite often, I have counseling rooted in the second group. There's a reason that James calls it uh, the, the, the thing that cannot be tamed, the tongue. We must wage a great war on this. And the question really becomes, why? Why is it that we must wage such a great war against these things? And it's rather simple. Because all of these sins sow discord where Christ has brought unity. You know, if, if we look at this section apart from the previous section, then I think we really miss altogether the whole picture that Paul is painting here. He's not demanding us to put to death sin because if we don't put it to death, then it won't be paid for. He's demanding that we put to death sin because he has purchased for himself a people that are meant to live in harmony and delight with one another as a member of the body of Christ. We use the term here so frequently that we are a part of the family of God. Why are we a part of the family of God? Because Christ did not go to the cross for an individual. Certainly, there's a reality that there I can say I died. But Christ went to, went to the cross for the church. Christ went to the cross for his body. Christ went to the cross to ransom for himself a people, a bride. And we must live in community in the way that Christ died for us. That when we look to the cross, we see not only ourselves, but we see every sin, trespass, and iniquity of the church of God in totality. And thus we remove, the, we remove these old men so that we can live together faithfully before him. Now, what is also important for us to understand is this is the primary way that we live. It's interesting that in the Christian faith, the concept of dying almost is always related to life. It is in our constant execution of the old man and our constant hiding of ourselves in Christ that we live most effectively. Recently, I've been working through this concept of living before the face of God. It's been my, like, I don't know, I go through these rabbit holes sometimes. And what I'm discovering as I'm aiming to live before the face of God, just constantly in light of his glory, is that this old man is made all the more apparent. This old man is made all the more clear and real. I see my sins more clearly. But you know what I have discovered in the midst of seeing my sins all the more clearly? Is that Christ is more beautiful. Christ is more lovely. And I find that even as I'm looking into this wicked man that still remains, that I can't do anything but run and to hide myself in Christ, to flee to him, to run to him, because knowing that in him there is indeed a perfect refuge for the soul. 
And it is almost as though, as it often is, the command is always really resolved when we simply run to Jesus and rest in his light and hide ourselves in him. It is very difficult to enjoy the old man in the light of Christ. As a matter of fact, it's almost as though as we get closer and closer to him, we see the corruption and yet even still the corruption fades. Because his light burns it away. It reveals most certainly, but it is indeed an all-consuming fire. And by the Spirit's work, we can look at these commands to put to death what is earthly in us and say, yes, I know the means. I will run to Jesus. And he even makes this clear to us in verse 10. It says, and have, and have put on the new self. How? Which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Day after day after day as we rest in him and hide ourselves in him. What we find is that we are being renewed day after day after day, being conformed to that new man. But that man is not us. The new man is not us. The new man is not a bigger, better version of yourself. The new man is that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, who is our great delight. Now, all of that being said, there's one more that I think is important. Notice what it says in verse 11. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It is in our realization that we are all in Christ, that all of our secondary identities and entitlements fade away. Friends, the beauty of this is that we have a high mark. We have a high identity that is not subject to change by anything that happens here below. Our, our identity, the pinnacle of it, is that we are Christ. We belong to him. Notice the language. And these would have been rather inflammatory words when Paul wrote them. No Greek or Jew. The Greeks love their identity. They love their citizenship, circumcision and uncircumcision. Can you imagine the Jews hearing this? That all of the works of the law that I've committed, they really bear no, no weight any longer? That even the uncircumcised hears this and perhaps even begins to think, well, that means there's no distinction between him and I. Or Scythian, or slave, or free. How would the slave have interpreted this? The free man is being identified with the slave and saying that there is no identity that matters other than Christ's. If you be in Christ, then that be the pinnacle of your identity. But we so often lay hold of all the identities and entitlements that we have here below that we can't enjoy the great privilege of belonging to Jesus, of having that as our superior delight and joy. Because we like, perhaps it is, our individual identity. Friends, the church has no individual identity. We are united in an identity. We belong to Jesus. And we must be glad to put to death all other identities. Our entitlements may fade that we might have all the riches of heaven, that our identities may fade away. If they be anything other than Christ, then they are idolatry. And so we put off the old man because the new man is so much better. We run to the one. We run to Christ. And in him, we will be renewed day in and day out after the image of our creator. And so if then you are dead, the call is to continue to die. If we see our death on the cross of Christ, if we see him pay the penalty of our sin, then we must ever constantly by the spirit be putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Why? Because we love the unity of the saints and sin does nothing but break it. Christ has brought unity. He has united us in his finished work. He has united us in a body and sin is something that so longs to break our fellowship. Saints, we must ever constantly wage war on sin. We must ever constantly wage war on sin, not alone, but in light of the gospel. 
that it is defeated, that we fight a corpse, but nonetheless the corpse still, for some reason, has remnants remaining. And to those we wage war to see them put all the more to death. Now, the text goes on to say, in verse 12 through 15, and it's the same basic concept really as last week when we talk about flee from these things, but pursue these. And so the concept is take off, but more than that, put on. What are we putting on? In verse 12 it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, the first thing that I love about this section is Paul takes a brief aside to remember who he is. Not only to remember who he is, but to remember who all the saints of God are. Notice the very first phrase in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Going back to the concept of identity, is there any identity more lovely than the identity that Christ has given you? Paul doesn't write here as about his apostleship. He doesn't write here about any other identity he has. He's not considering any, any, any identity that he has been given that is, that is perhaps esteemed in the world's view. Instead, he looks at all the saints and lumps himself in as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is the great joy of the Christian. To say with confidence, and I would mind, remind you, this, this can be said with confidence, that you are, because you are in Christ, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That you who were once dead in your trespasses and sins, that you who had offended the holy God altogether can be called not alienated, but chosen, not defiled, but holy, not rejected, but beloved. This is the reality of the gospel. And as even Paul pushes in so that we can understand what it means to put on this new man, he first reminds us of who we genuinely are in Christ, holy and beloved. And this should be, first and foremost, our great delight. But then Paul lists these attributes that are necessary. And I want you to notice they're all necessary for familial life. They're necessary that we might live in community with one another. I'm convinced that Colossians 3 just puts to death the concept of a monastic Christianity where we hide ourselves away. The reality is that if all of these things be true, then we are brought into one body, then we must bear in us qualities that are necessary for familial life. Because we are, as one says, members of close quarters Christianity. We're not separated from one another. We're not broken from one another. We often say here, we want genuine and authentic and loving community here. And I'm convinced we we say that just because we love what the scripture teaches about the church. We are indeed a family of God. But how can we live in this family of God? I don't know about you all. I struggle to live in my own family. I need the grace of God to effectively live inside of my own family. How then can I come and be a part of the church of God with so many distinctions, so many variations? Well, it's simple. We bear these marks. What do we put on? We put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, long-suffering, and forgiveness. My goodness, each of these are necessary to have a peaceable home. I would say all the more they are necessary to have a peaceable church. But how do we attain these things? How do we put on compassionate hearts? How do we live in kindness? How do we lower ourselves in humility? How do we practice meekness when we have all the power in the world? How do we demonstrate patience? And how do we suffer well? How do we forgive? You know, it's rather simple once again. How do we bear all of these marks? We look to Jesus. 
And in him, all of these are perfectly exemplified. If you long to see kindness inside of the church, look to Christ and his infinite kindness. He is the omnibenevolent one, infinitely good. Don't ask yourself the question, how can I be compassionate and kind? We ask ourselves the question, how can I walk like Jesus? How can I work as he worked? How can I walk as he walked? And in that, you will see this ever-constant flow of compassion, compassionate hearts and kindness because these are attributes that our king has, that he bears. These are the attributes that we are being conformed into by the Spirit. How do we see humility? Well, Philippians makes this abundantly clear to us. We look to the one who humbled himself infinitely more than any of us have the ability to humble ourselves. We see in him his willingness to take on the form of a servant and realize that if Christ can take on the form of a servant, there is no soul that we cannot serve. How do we exercise patience and long-suffering? We look at how Christ deals with his church. Praise God for his patience and long-suffering with his bride. If these were not the glorious attributes of God, we would have been cast off long ago. But because he is patient, because he is long-suffering, and even more than that, because he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, we see in him the ability to endure, to be patient, to suffer long and well to the glory of God. And lastly, as the text says in verse 13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also we must forgive. How do we understand the forgiveness of God? Does it know any bounds? Does the forgiveness of God, is it possible for us to to drain the wells of mercy? Is it possible for us to look at the ocean of grace and see it emptied? The answer is a resounding no. When we look to Christ, we see that forgiveness comes and forgiveness always comes if we run to him. And so how then do we conduct ourselves with one another? We conduct ourselves ever constantly forgiving. Why? Because Christ has forgiven us an infinite debt. How can we do anything else? This is a part of living inside of the community of God. This demands that we pursue each of these attributes individually, primarily by pursuing Christ. And then and only then will they be exemplified inside of the corporate body. Then and only then will we see these things brought to fruition inside of the church. And so perhaps it is the easiest way to consider this is to ask a question. Do we as individuals walk this way? Do we walk in compassion and forgiveness? Do we walk in kindness and humility and meekness? Maybe the better question is, do we as a church body walk in this way? Do we as a church body look to Jesus? Do we see in him forgiveness and thus we forgive to the uttermost? Do we see in him humility and thus we humble ourselves as low as we could possibly go for the sake of serving the body of Christ? Because these are the marks that cause unbelievers to walk in and say, surely God is among them. We look at these things and we see that they are indeed lovely. Can you imagine a home that is rooted in all of these, that these are the attributes put forth all the while, all of these wicked things are being put to death. Can you imagine what it would be like should we pursue Christ intimately and faithfully? Then these things would be present. And can I say just from a pastoral perspective, it is the great joy of my soul that inside of this body, I normally see these things. Because I see not only just these things, kindness and humility, it's not these that I see pursued. I see Christ pursued. And should we ever constantly be doing that? Should we never break gaze of him? Then these things will be all the more formed in us. And so the command is to put these attributes on and above all to put on lastly love. For in love, all these are born and bound together. Notice verse 14. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The chief ethos of the Christian life is this, that we love Christ and love one another. 
Friends, it really seems as though this is the root of every major command that's given in the New Testament. That you simply love one another. How is it that all these things are bound in beauty and not bound in self-righteousness? Because let's be honest, I can fake humility. I can fake meekness. I can fake patience. But friends, I am convinced that it is an impossibility for the saint to fake love, at least for long. If we love Christ and love one another, then all of these things will be the natural fruit of that love and affection that we have for one another. And remember, brothers and sisters, you have been in Christ with us at the cross. You've been with Christ with us in the resurrection, and we will be with Christ forevermore. These things will mark the church in eternity. But may it be that these things mark the church now. And how I think the simplest way for us to remember and how we can actually love one another, especially those who perhaps we may find to be all the more difficult to love. First, we love who the church is hidden in. If you love who the church is hidden in, it is impossible to hate her. If we love Christ, then it is impossible for us to hate his bride. And that not only goes for the corporate body, but it also goes for the individual. If we love who each member of the church is hidden in, then it will be all easier to love them, to love the member, even the difficult one. If we love Christ, if we love who all the church of God is hidden in, then we can most certainly love each member and the body as a whole. Now, the last thing is what does this look like inside of the faith family? The Colossians goes on to really address every sphere of life. The last one, uh, but the first one is in regard to the local body of believers. What does it look like when we are loving one another and loving one another faithfully? It looks like this. In verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The clearest way that the body of Christ walks in love is by together worshiping their head. Notice the language here. Let the peace of Christ rule in you. Meditate upon him. Delight in him. To which indeed you are called into one body. He is the means of our unity. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That we take in and delight in the scriptures. We take in and delight the word of Christ. We take in delight in the gospel. And if we do these things, it naturally produces this. A teaching and admonishing of one another in all wisdom. That there is a a constant theme in the communication of the saints of God. We have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly and so naturally what is it that we converse about? What is it that we delight in together? The only thing that we can delight in together, the whole church of God can delight in together is the groom. The only unity in the bride has always been and will always be the groom. The only means by which we can have true fellowship and delight is if we are all together abiding in Christ and delighting in his authority, delighting in his beauty. If we do this, then that naturally outflows communication about him. There's nothing sadder than the church of God that can go an entire Sunday morning in just your normal everyday conversation without talking about Jesus. And I'm not talking about from the pulpit. I'm not talking about once worship has started. I'm talking about you walk in the door. What should be the theme of our day? And that's not just Sunday. It's every day. The church of God has one source of unity. Why would we go anywhere else to find it? If we have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, it naturally leads to a teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What is our teaching? What is our admonition? Paul addresses this in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim. 
We are ever constantly pointing one another to Jesus that we might all the more love Him and have unity in Him. Now, this is the sweetest thing that I think is presented here. In verse 16, it goes on. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you know the beauty of corporate singing? The beauty of corporate singing, should the songs be selected accurately and they be faithful to the Word of God, is that all the church of God is professing one thing together. The beauty of corporate singing is that all the church of God is even in the song admonishing and encouraging one another. There's a reason we sing songs that are vertical to one another, that each of us can hear the profession of another, and then also on top of that, singing songs to God. This is rooted in not just a concept that, Kate, that we came up with when we considered, like, how does a church service go? This is commanded by the apostles that we sing together. The natural outworking of everything that we listed is indeed worship, but not only worship individually, but worship corporately. Is there anything more lovely than the saints of God singing together? No, because there is a unique profession that's occurring in that moment. We are singing the truths of Scripture in harmony and in unity. And friends, it is never, we are never more like what we will be in heaven than when the saints of God sing together corporately. The reality is that at the end of this, if we desired unity, if we desire all of these things to be brought to fruition in us, the natural outworking of it is faithful worship unto God. And that's not only in our preaching and in our songs, but it's in our day-to-day life. The last phrase that's in verse 17, it says this, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Each of these things sets forth the concept of living every moment of the day before the face of God, that we would delight in Him and rejoice in Him in the mundane every day as well as the corporate gathering of the saints, that our unity would be in something that is immovable and unshakable, namely the finished work of Jesus. And that does work itself out in day-to-day life. I was robbed of a Christian message that demanded, that did bring about some great change in my life when I was young. I never realized that the concept of being born again actually did influence the way that I live, not only individually, but corporately. Saints, let us not rob ourselves of what Christ purchased for us. The only reason that you are here in this body is because Christ has placed you here by his finished work. And not only by his finished work, but also by the spirit that would bring you here. We are to live in harmony with one another. That people who look in might see us and say, Surely God is among them. 